Bills knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 468. Jason Lingren is with me. And by popular demand, so many people asked for Dylan Sicoccio to come back and pick up. We're going to pick up with Dylan where we left off uh, in episode 459, kind of, sort of. Welcome, Jason. And a very lovely good morning. All right. Let's see if we can keep up here. Welcome back, Dylan. Popular demand, standing O. Hopefully this won't disappoint. We had uh, left off talking about the origins of, or I should say on last episode, uh, Phoenicia's first great uh, colony being Italy. And there's a lot of people I respect in this space, uh, old researchers who have this idea that they were trying to figure out where this stuff is originating. Because when you look at language, it really does span all the way across to India. yet you see no phenotypes matching that. So one of the things that I, it's an anecdotal quote, but this gentleman named Parsons noted that on the Aras River, which is the Greeks called Araxis, that's going to go from the Caspian Sea, or it's, it's the Kura uh, or the Cyrus River, but it, go, it turns into the Aras, it splits. But these rivers go all the way from the Caspian Sea almost to the Black Sea. goes into Turkey, kind of like near the border of Georgia, goes through Azerbaijan, Armenia, northern Iran. And the reason this is significant is because he mentioned there was a people once there called the Roshi. And the Etruscans, who are the Phoenicians, direct descendants, but their language is basically the same, they called themselves the Rasana which contains ras, meaning wisdom. You'll see this in words like rashit. You'll see it in like rashashana, the head, uh, and ana, the year. So ras pertains to top or head. You also see this with arke in Greek. And so rashashana could also be the wisdom of the year. And this would correlate to the rajputs, which we talked about, but we also addressed how they don't really have history on the Rajputs. And so Ras, read like Hebrew, becomes Sar, which is an important root because you'll see that in uh, Sar, like E-S-A-R, you'll see it in C-Z-A-R, but also you'll see that as the capital of, or the once capital or alleged capital of Phoenicia, which was Tyr at one point, or Sur, that's what it's pronounced, like. And it means rock. We talked about that on the last episode. And so perhaps this is a coincidence, but I wanted to mention it it just in case future discoveries confirm it. Recall, we talked about Ethiopian sharing 500 roots with Hebrew and Hebrew taking its alphabet from Phoenician, which is a language of the Kelti having almost no affinity with Hebrew. And this is significant because the prince of Ethiopia or in Ethiopia was called Ras. R-A-S. It was written like this because when the Ethiopians turned their upright writing, they turned the word as such to read it. But the people in the lower down uh, the Nile, they, whom we call the cops, they turned the column uh, the other way, as the Greeks did, and have it as sar. So they're just anagram or reverses of each other. But thus they have sarob or sarof or the prince serpent or wise prince. And thus in Egypt, it is Prince Sar 
in Ethiopia, it is Prince Ras. And so it doesn't matter how you splice this, its origin is demonstrably Phoenician, going back to Sur, Tir, and Etruscan Ras. And so we see the connection of the serpent and the wisdom. You guys want to jump in? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. You messed up a few things. I, I, I'm guessing most people, when they were in junior high, uh, heard of the city Tyre, which I believe you called Tyr also. Tyr. Yeah, it's pronounced Tyr. Yeah. When I was in school, uh, the idea was that the Phoenicians were long ago on the coast where maybe Israel, Palestine is, and they were masters of the sea over there. But you mentioned Ethiopia, which is interesting because it breaks the mold of mainline history. What mainline history wants you to accept has been interfered with in Ethiopia. There's biblical connections. I think people have even done genetic studies to show that the black African, I don't know if you want to call them tribes, whatever is the proper term to refer to them, do have genetic relationships to that part of the world. But then you find things like the claim that the Ark of the Covenant is there. I don't know if you're familiar with any of this, but there's clearly some kind of a tie to the times we're roughly referring to. Yes. Yes, there. Uh, well, so like I said, I th- this is gets going to get crazy. I just want to remind everybody: the Phoenicians could be a p- placeholder term. It's just all I have, right? Because they themselves didn't call them Phoenicians. You know how, like most people, almost never choose their name. Most groups, it's like always like, you know, they called them uh, they call Phoenicia the land of purple because that's where those special shellfish grew that they were able to harvest their shells. And get that purple dye, that sodium dye. That's where they all. And interestingly enough, that's where you have words like Syrian, Assyrian, right? Um, I don't. It's hard to piece what is actual history and what isn't. But through this language, you can see it. And I'm going to address this how like they get down there in just a moment. But I just wanted to like um, remind people the Greek letters brought by Cadmus before their increase were Pelagic, and the ancient Greeks had two known alphabets. They had the Pelagic, which is considered the Attic, the Argive or Arcadian alphabet, which uh, learned men thought were the same as Etruscan, brought out of Arcadia into Latium by Evander. And this is why you have this issue with the ancient Greek being identical with the ancient Latin. And the other was called Ionian, which is Phoenician, Cadmian or Aeolian. But they appear to have been the same in terms of the radicals. And a gentleman named Davies wrote, they do not seem to have augmented the number of letters. Only 16 are ascribed to Cadmus. The same number is claimed by the old Latins, by the old Germans, by the Irish, and by the British Bard. It's so interesting. You know, I, uh, I began to think, you know, the little snail that they harvested to make the purple. And then there was a whole thing about, oh, we lost the formula to make this purple for the Jewish, the little thing, they, the little prayer shawl they wear around their waist. But isn't it interesting that you're attributing uh, the first peoples that were aware of to do that as Phoenician, and that purple became the symbol for royalty. Even in many parts of the world, no one was allowed to wear purple. Some places they put you to death wearing purple. From the episode Jason and I did on the mystical world of color, whatever we called it, um, it, it, that color represents mastery, master, being masterful, uh, which is interesting because 
in the real world of color, not the kind of fake computer world where it's projected at you, where you put red and blue together, you do not get purple. But if you go back to basics, take two crayons, put red and uh, blue, which are opposite on the color wheel together and bring those opposites together, you get the purple mastery. But it seems like you're linking that back to uh, originally the Phoenicians. And by the way, Jason, since you play guitar, he dropped a couple terms there that I know are modal scales. Iolian and Ionic are modal scales mm-hmm. that a lot of people play in guitar. That's correct. But yeah. So what do you think? I, I mean, there's there's got to be a reason those things get their name, but uh, yep. it, do you feel like there's some significance to that purple idea uh, apparently coming out of the sea under Phoenician times? I do. And um, also you'll note in the middle of the free Masonic tracing board, it's an Ionic pillar, right? And the the phonetic green language, if you will, or the language of the birds regarding that, or the lotus language, or the petal language, however, whatever culture you want to take it from, ionic represents your eye being on. But also the I and J are interchangeable. And so it's also, or in the Y is interchangeable. So it's yoni. And that's something to think about. And what you said, just to back you guys up in case someone thinks, because a lot of people want to look at this symbolism and just treat it like art and interpret it however they want. And that's what's happened over, especially over the last 200 years, which is why we're so far off of understanding these things. But to back you guys up, this system was rigid and it's in the Justinian code that if you got caught selling this color or wearing it, you were put to death. This is not a joking around matter in the ancient world. Well, they're, they're claiming they overfished those snails at times too. But I mean, I got to ask Dylan. So we, everybody knows in school, you learned, oh, the Greeks had these three columns, you know, Ionic, Dorian, Corinthian, but that Ionic keeps showing back up. And you earlier mentioned a place called Arcadia. Now there is absolutely, this is in myth. There's absolutely some occult usage of the idea of arcade it's even in old paintings where and it was connected with the where the cathars were apparently there's like a tomb a guy's pointing at it it says something like in arcadia but do you feel like the use of mythical arcadia by the greeks and the name coming forward ionic for things like their column is that linking back to phoenicia it probably is as uh so when you look at like phoenician mythology what we have left of it versus greek mythology all that stuff Basically, the Greeks just piggybacked off of the Phoenician stuff that was already set up, that infrastructure. But the difference is the Phoenician mythology, all these gods were like like fathers or like instructors, and they were they treated the human race good, right? The mythology was really like benevolent, whereas in Greek it takes a darker turn, the mythology. Maybe moving from a golden era, is that the idea? You might be onto something with that. I, I can't I can't verify it yet, but it's it leave it on the burner, let it simmer because you might you might have to put that on the like turn the heat up on that soon because you know arcane I think that's part of where arcane comes from that idea, but I, that's just anecdotal for right now. Well, there's there's references to what we're talking about. Uh, of course, the Arcadia. There's some there's some magical occult link to the idea of a place called Arcadia, if you remember correctly, and I'll get this wrong. In the 5th century, when supposedly Greeks discovered how to be free for the first time, there were schools of thought. I believe one of those schools, and I don't know which one it was, was named Arcadia or something close to it. Academia is not far off it, but 
have you considered, you know, look what Rome did with the idea of Saturn. There's like some magical reference of either a king being named Saturn or the luminary idea of Saturn being tied to a golden age, but it precedes everything in what they considered the modern era. Uh, There must be some link to all this. It's quite possible. And, you know, that's that it's, it's another thread for people to pull who are interested in that aspect of it. But I can't tell you right now. What I can say is that there are accounts, but that I'm, 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 first of all, I'm suspicious of this account. And I'll tell you why in a second. But apparently the Greeks were like, the, the Phoenicians considered the Greeks savages. And a, a, apparently they like didn't even have use of fire and stuff. When the, when the Phoenicians were rolling through those islands, the inhabitants that we end up ended up being called Greeks or whatever, whatever they are. But I don't, I don't, the reason I don't believe that is I don't see how you could be getting to these islands. Even if you're just using like rudimentary, like not even seaworthy vessels, but just good enough to get you to the islands. I don't see how you could build that stuff and not have use of fire yet. But good point. It's just something that I've come across But that. Like, so I'm always contradicting, like whenever I see an account, I just try to think common sense. Is this somebody writing something because they have like an agenda? Do they just like, you know, have it out for a certain race of people? You never know. So you got to, you have to kind of like, just leave everything out there and see what you can prove. So just to give like, you know, we all went through school and everybody heard the words Mesopotamia and Fertile Crescent and, you know, the cradle of, you know, civilization, all these ideas. If you were going to place what what we're currently calling Phoenicia on a map, how would you do it? I would look at the entire old Roman Empire. Basically, (laughs) it looks like like they and even more so. I think something happened in Africa that, you know, whatever stopped the Nile from being as fruitful as it is, there's like a lot of something must have happened that drove those civilizations out of there. And that's what's not being accounted for. Atlantis? I mean, is this pre or post delay? It must well, I don't be- know because the thing is, is it's the exact opposite of Atlantis, right? It, like, so like 95% of Africa's, uh, Egypt's population is within a few kilometers of the Nile. But when you look at like the stuff that we're about to get into, you wonder how could people have gotten there and, and done all the things they've done. And I suspect that the Nile had to be way bigger than it was, or just something had to be different because, you know, they found those pyramids and you can see the old photos from when they like got them, like in the 1800s and stuff, those pyramids are buried. Like most of what you see in Egypt and stuff, that stuff is under sand. And yeah, the tops of them were sticking out and stuff, but they had to do a ton of excavation. So who knows what the hell happened over there, but I suspect something it dried up. There's actually some some things I could offer. Like there's examples of people going far into the desert and finding permanent watering holes that have crocodiles in them, which absolutely means at some point um, they must have been hooked up to a bigger waterway. But I thought the uh, the Sphinx and all that shows evidence of water damage too. Yeah, I've heard, I've I've heard that claim. Yeah, the one guy tried to make that claim. Well, they also make the claim that it was green. But you know, if I was you, I'd go look at the the outlying water places where they found the crocodiles because it would really expand the influence of the great river. Yeah. And so like, if we were just to like answer your question, the empire is massive. So you'll see, I would basically see like everything that touches the Mediterranean plus Phoenicians also con- went into Asia. Right. So there's uh, who knows the extent to it necessarily, but 
it was huge. And this is what this is what history is overlooking. When I try to tell people like we're dealing with an ancient universal civilization, it doesn't matter what you call it necessarily, but you can prove where it is through language or how far it's reached. And it went all the way from like everything touching the um the the Mediterranean from Asia Minor, Minor, North Africa, all the way around down to like Mauritania. Um the Strait of Gibraltar, all the way up to Britannia, all the way around. That's like all that's how they got to Scandinavia, I, I suspect, just based on like the languages and the, the gene pool and stuff like that. Um, which so we're gonna get into it, but not yet. But I I went fell into like a rabbit hole with the Berbers because you had asked about the Berbers, and it was exactly what I suspected. It just strengthens my case, but we're gonna get into that. So there were three groups. The Berbers are one. Uh, help me out, Jason. What's the architect? What was the culture of the architect? We spoke yeah, you were talking about the Basque language. The, and the, the Basque language. language. And there, then there's one more group I'm aware of, which is an island chain uh, or something like that, which I don't remember the name of. I was going to say something else. But I, I mean, we're, we're talking about enormous amounts of time ago, right? I mean, if we just simply looked at what people look like in Scandinavia or Asia or any of these, they're, they're very, they're quite distinct from one another. So this must've been epics ago. Well, it's not, it's not that as distinct as you'd think. Like basically you'd look at these regions, it would be basically an amalgamation from the Celtics, Celti in Europe and the Indians who set up and colonized uh, Ethiopia and Egypt. You know, that's that's part of the throwback from the box saga, right? All the... Um, I don't know. Or, I've never or, read the box saga. Oh, you should. It's claiming some ancient history. Um, some of it's very interesting. Other parts of it uh, get you scratching your head, but there are parts that relate to what the Vatican did that make you... I mean, the bell seems to ring. Part of it is they claim the... Uh, I can't think of their name, but the peoples that came out of Egypt... And the, the, the Roma, I think was, was their name or no, what's the wandering bands of people. I can't think of it. They have dark hair. Anyhow, go ahead. Well, so yeah, if you jump back in, if you think, if it's, or if it jogs your memory, but the Welsh letters. So we just talked about like how the Pelagic, Etruscan, Phoenician, they appear to have all been the same in terms of their radicals and used by the old Latins, the Germans, the Irish, British bards, right? The Welsh letters. Though 36 in number are only 16 of them radical and almost entirely the same as the Etruscan. And this might be fun for you to do like a show with somebody from Wales or uh, Cornwall, some, something where you can start getting into some of these old uh, languages and see what they think about them. Um, but that explains the affinity of the Welsh to the alleged quote unquote Hebrew. But it must be recalled that Although Hebrew took the letter system from the Etruscans and Phoenicians, the Etrusco-Phoenician language has its affinity to the Celtic and not the Hebrew. And even the highest authorities will concede that, that whole framework of like Semites and all that stuff, the Phoenicians were not Semites, as we talked about. Uh, Homer called the Pelagi, the Pelagi. And this is where I get, it means holy sailors. And that's why I titled the book that, because they preserved the use of letters. Now, the Italians, their letters from uh, the sepulchral grottoes at Corneto, the ancient Tarquinii, uh, they consisted of straight lines and angles. Tarquinia, formerly Corneto, 
note the corn symbolism, Keren and all that stuff, the Kronos, all that. It's in Lazio, which is in Etruria. That, that, that is what made up part of Etruria back then. And so the religion, this is where it starts to get interesting. The religion of going into like Ethiopian, what you were saying, the religion of the Celts in Gaul and Britain is the same as that is the Hindus and the Egyptians. It's the same as that is the quote unquote Canaanites as the Phrygians, the Greeks, the, and the Romans. Now, the Phoenicians once possessed the empire of Asia and they made the Egyptian Thebes their capital back then. So their capital has changed a bunch of times as they've expanded. And the reason that's significant is because you'll see the Egyptian Thebes is it's where Luxor is now. So if anyone wants to pull up a map, it's like halfway through the country that we call Egypt. That was never called Egypt, by the way, as Robert Taylor noted, it's an astrological term. And 95% of Egypt's population lives within a few kilometers of the Nile. And the Nile was navigable from the Mediterranean all the way down to what they call now Lake Nasser, which is in the southeast corner of Egypt and basically goes into the Sudan. And who knows how things have changed because the geography changes overnight in Africa. And something I'd like you guys or your audience to look up is in Ethiopia, there's something called the Dabaha, uh, Dabahu Fisher, and it's spelled D-A-B-B-A-H-U. And you can look at this stuff, and it happened overnight, swallowed up like a whole herd of animals and everything. And all it would take is like a few of those type of disruptions in the Nile. And I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened, which is what caused that region's downfall in the Nile to never flood or inundate like it used to. And we don't know what those rivers were like in the ancient world. But from Khartoum, the Nile branches into the Blue Nile that goes to Ethiopia and the White Nile that goes south to uh, Yuba in South Sudan, which is philologically Yova because the B and the V interchange and the O and U interchange or Hova. So that's where Yo uh, and the U and E interchange, that's where Jew comes from. So. I suspect these are all connected. Now, Ethiopia, this is where it gets, when I was saying that Ethiopia is colonized by Indians and stuff, it is literally the theological name of India, referencing the adoption of Indian mytholo uh, mythology into the Coptic. And the Indian symbolism in North Africa came at least in part from the Brahmins of Hindustan or somebody who had been instructed by them, because this is going to get interesting. Um, but according to Monsieur uh, Bailey, he was a French astronomer, everything in China, India, and Persia tends to prove that these countries were depositories of science and not its inventors. He said the things alluded to do not assimilate to the climate or the countries. They appear in an unnatural state like the elephant in Paris, i.e. the constellations of the Brahmin mythology were scarcely visible at Benares, which is now Uttar Pradesh, which is uh, 26.85 degrees north latitude. And the mythological, astronomical, Hindu allegories are nonsense as applied to Bengal, but are easily applicable to the state of the heavens between the latitudes of 40 and 50 degrees north. He added, 
when I contemplate this gigantic beast, which with us will not propagate its kind, I instantly conclude that it is a stranger. Thus, it is with many of the incidences or incidents in the systems of the Hindus. They suit not to the climate nor the heavens. They are daily dying away. They barely exist. Hence, I conclude them to be a race of foreign growth. Now, this reason this is so bizarre, and this is why I think it comes from the East. Uh, sorry, excuse me. It might, even though it may originally come from the East, long before all this stuff, long before Brahmanism and all that stuff existed, but then grew it at, into its own thing in the in the European European North African M, Universal Empire, if you will, and then came back. The stuff we know today, I think, originated in the West and came back because Sir William Jones was of the opinion. First of all, he's of the opinion that the Kelty and the Irish came from Armenia. And I don't want to just like, I'm not going to throw him under the bus because he's brilliant, but I I disagree. But Strabo noted that the people uh, that the Greeks called Syrians, they themselves were called amongst themselves anyways, Armenians. And he, Sir William Jones thought that the Persian was the parent of Sanskrit and the Zend, uh, the Greek, the Latin, and the Gothic, which he thought was Celtic. And Persian and Arabic are the same. But this, the reason I think it's uh, incorrect, based on what I demonstrated last episode about the Phoenician, uh, and what he's going to prove, in my, in my opinion, is he noted that the Brahmins could never have migrated from India to Iran and this is where all those rivers I was talking about in the beginning, the Aras and the um, Kairis or Cyrus rivers in those days. The reason the Brahmins could never have migrated from India to Iran is because they were ex- expressly forbidden by their oldest existing laws to leave the region which they inhabit at this day. And the Arabs have not even a trace of emigration into Persia before Muhammad. That's common era. So he was the of the opinion that the inhabitants of Britain were Armenian, but again they were Celtic. So that's that's his idea. Not saying that I agree with it. I just wanted to put it out there because I like to put everything on the table for people to decide. But the reason, going back to what we were talking about, the Phoenician and Hebrew taking its letters from Phoenician, why this matters because if the Greek didn't get rid of the digamma, it would have had the same seventeen letters as the Irish. And according to Bishop Thomas Burgess, of the 28 Arabic letters, 17 of them are primary figures. The powers of notation are the same as the Hebrew letters, i.e. Aleph 1, Beth 2, Gimel 3, etc. He, he also wrote that the Persian alphabet is so near the Arabic that if the reader affixed three dots to the bottom, two, uh, bottom letters 2 and 3 and to the top of 5 and 11, he will be in possession of both Arabic and Persian alphabets. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean, right? Does that mean from this day, someone who was brought up in, say, Israel could go over to someone brought up in Iran uh, and read each other's alphabets? Yeah, they're, they're very close because there's pretty much not a root word in the Bible that doesn't exist in Arabic. And I think it tends to show that Arabic is older. But just based on the letters, they have more letters. So I don't suspect. Like somebody has claimed before that, like, oh, the original alphabetical system is coming from the Arabic. 
but you'll see the same problems with the Qfic, which is before the Arabic that you will with the Hebrew. They're squiggly scribe letters. They're for the, like, you need modern tools to write them. This is not convenient for carving into stone and all that stuff. But also the same reasons why I don't think Sanskrit came, like why Phoenician or Aturian didn't descend from Sanskrit is because how is Sanskrit getting there if the Brahmins aren't allowed to travel? And when you look at this, you can't have a language descending from another language and having less letters. I've, we've just never seen that. Everybody's like expanding, you know? So you, you should take a look at the box saga and the peoples with the dark hair that I was trying to think of are gypsies that the box saga attributes to coming out of Egypt at a certain point. But as Rose pointed out to me, um, when we covered parts of the box saga, um, parts of it I didn't cover. Anyone who reads it will realize why it becomes so sensational so quickly. Um, it's hard in the way we think now to get down to what may or may not matter. Um, I think the parts where the Vatican gets involved, that sounds like a bell ringing pretty true to me, but there's 13 races and they describe where they go. They're claiming this is the oldest history in the world. There are some crazy things like they're saying people came from goats, which is why it's Bach. Um, but y- you know what I know about myth and history, right? It gets shuffled as you go along. Um, it is claimed that this was handed forward to what was last guy's name? I think it was Eeyore Bach. He didn't die too long ago. Maybe the eighties. I forget. Yeah. But you should check it out and see what you think of the race dispersion compared to what you're working on. And also specifically the gypsies, particularly with your problem, logical problem with the Brahmin, not traveling. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what you think of the Bach claims. Yeah. Well, when I look at it, I see book. And Sagax is sage or wise. So you have the the book of the wise. Well, actually, I, well, I can add this from their point of view. BOK is going to relate directly to goat. And even like you've heard of Bach beer, there's always a goat. So there's a goat connection to that word. And, and you'll see why when you read. It's an easy read. It's not that long. But I, I wanted to make a comment too about what you were saying about the the Nile, if I'm not mistaken, Lake Nasser's where they built the dam, right? I don't know. Uh, that That's unfamiliar to me other than looking at it geographically. So pretty pretty sure, and people will correct me if I'm wrong, they, they built a dam on the Nile. It was either the 60s or the 70s, and they sunk one of the big Ramses temples, or they were going to. So they cut it apart and rebuild it. The whole thing's kind of a sham when you go yeah, look. Yeah, I saw when, that. I saw yeah, that. When, you, when you carefully look. But here's the thing. For those who checked out James Shelby Downard, I was reading uh, Downard, and he started saying, I don't remember if it was from the main manuscript or somewhere else or something that Michael Hoffman had handed me, that there is an inordinate amount of death when you compare all kinds of construction to dams and bridges. What's interesting about this is in the old myths, you know, the troll under the bridge, which is funny the way we use it now, um, dark souls or dark evil spirits are supposed to congregate under the bridges. And at first, when you hear that, you're all, yeah, yeah. But when you go read what Downard said, it starts to make perfect sense. So there's the Nile. And what they did is they dammed. It's like the three gorges in China. Essentially, what they've done is they've given the earth a stroke, right? It's like a main blood vein, main artery that's just been stopped. And that apparently has ramifications. But I was surprised to look 
And I don't know why I'm bringing all this up just because I think the dam is in Nasser on the Nile. That's why the example here matters. But if you go look at the building of any of the big dams, uh, you will see, and even the Golden Gate Bridge, the death rate is through the roof. And James Shelby Downard says there's an occult reason for that. Anyhow, (laughs) to keep moving forward. Well, that's so those so those natural there could be like natural dams that have been created by the way the earth, you know, fissured. Na- natural stroke, reasons. right? Yeah, natural stroke, exactly. And so that that could have been what caused it. So those those seventeen primary letters of the Arabic are the same as the old Irish. And here we see the the languages that copy each other and have great affinity, i.e., Arabic and Hebrew while they take their letters from Phoenician, which is Celtic, all the while having almost no affinity to it. And I'm not denying the system connecting the cultures, but the Arabic is an improvement. It comes from Cufic, like I said. Um, but I'm proving with all this that historians have gotten it wrong. And I don't think it's on accident. And this idea that we all sprung up from Mesopotamia isn't true. And that's why I disagree with Sir William Jones, who is of the utmost there's somebody qualified and you look up how many languages that languages that guy knows where he's gone he has the ability more than me to look at this stuff however he's part of the status quo and there's this idea you know when you get into like evolution and all that stuff there's just these like underlying ideas that they want us to believe that we all came from the same single race and i just don't think that is the way this world works at all based on the fact that we don't change Don't you feel like part of it is, I've always felt like this. I mean, I start to consider, did we, are we really evolving or have we been falling? In other words, is it more accurate to say we were like animals or however you would do it and we came up to being upright humans or is it the other way around? Were we more ethereal at one point and we got denser and denser, but it almost feels every time I hear someone talk about they're hiding a golden age. That's what it feels like to me. But Think, think about that idea when you consider the supposed library burn at Alexandria, like, you know, the way it's framed, the, the, the history and knowing of the world. Someone torched that place. Uh, why would you do such a thing? You know, for any reason, why would you do such a thing? But I mean, what do you think? Well, the library of Alexandria, that was torched because they were getting ready to move into the, the new Christian system. And that's had all the stuff that would expose it. So they had to get rid of all of that because what you look at from the origins of Christianity, especially when you look at people from the church that have already said this, uh, I'll, I'll quote, uh, I'll read it off the top of my head. I don't have it memorized, but basically Eusebius admitted that the gospels are the writings of the Therapeuti, who are a Jewish Buddhist sect in Egypt. And that ecclesiastical system, a bishop at every church, was already in place before Christianity ever existed. And so that's why they just converted that into Christianity. So there's a whole lot of gravel in that, but Reverend Taylor exposes that. Another one of those people that exposes it thoroughly. Well, I can pour some more gas on this fire. So think about what you're saying. What we think is probably true is Julius, the famous Caesar, was probably deified after he died. I accept all day long that Augustus was a god in his lifetime. I accept that he jacked the calendars. All of it was looking back at the so-called Oriental, 
every 500 and whatever it is, 56 years or something, there was going to be a son of God or basically like a Buddha type teacher or a Christ-like figure. That's what they're claiming. But think about this. So if the burning of the library was for the onset of Christianity and they wanted to start covering the tracks that were behind, that would be Julius, right? In that apparent era. So then the timeline in the worship of Augustus Caesar of Augustus's promotion to God while he was alive, that exactly matches the years one in Christian, in the Christian calendrical method. So what he's claiming they did is they moved it 15 days. The sacred Latin college later moved it 15 days. So it's interesting what you're saying that they burned that library because Christianity was coming. If any of this is true, it would wholesale put the entire idea within the ending control of the last Caesars we're aware of, basically. Ray's, we're playing Augustus Caesar poker and I'm raising the pot right now. All right, Ray's. According to, according to Bassange, Basnage, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I think it's French. The Nile was called King Augustus by the Egyptians. And Augustus, and Augustus meant sanctity and deification on earth. And now the eighth month coming to a coming to a year near you, the eighth month, August. Yeah, and we see that. And that's when I think the flooding began. Like that's why they reckon their year at the summer solstice back then in, in that time, in that part of the world. And so like Rome is made famous by the augury of Augustus. And we see this idea in like the augur, augurs. And you see that Latuius, that staff that all these archetypes carry. And so the troubling details for me that like with Augustus Caesar that I don't really have as bad with Julius is, you know, like his father was Apollo in the form of a serpent. And Suetonius wrote about that. And it's just like all the other sun gods at the change of an age, like you talked about, whether it be Bacchus, Hercules, Nimrod, uh, Cyrus, Alexander, Scipio, Africanus, Solomon, etc. Can we shift that age at year one since there is no year zero? Do you think we know how, how jacked up it got? And I accept that at that point, it was jacked by Augustus so he could be a god in his own time, a fake god. But yeah. we, we can't deny <laughs> they went from... Well, they went probably from a straight count. In other words, there was either they were counting backwards or they were counting forwards, but there was no break. And then all of a sudden, and this is what Del Mar says in, in the worship of Augustus, he says, this is more, no more insidious thing to a chronologer than ADBC. Yeah. So all of a sudden our calendar goes to a new, instead of we're going to count backwards from this point and forwards from this point at the same time, but there's no year zero. Do you think because of the gravity of what we're seeing, it's actually marking an age change? Or do you think that too? Yeah, I think I think you're seeing with the Augustus, uh, like Augustus not sticking and being replaced by Jesus. That is that era. Because and the reason being, I, I'm, I'm, I don't even think Augustus was real. And I'll tell you why. Because aside from the things that I just said, he also was born mense decima, which is means in the 10th month. That's characteristic of sun gods, Buddha, De- all December. that stuff. So yeah, yeah, low point of the sun probably, right? Yep, reckoning of the year, but 10th month of pregnancy. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel, you have the 12 tribes of Ionians, you have the 12 tribes of Etruscans who founded the 12 tribes of Campania and the 12 more in the uh, Apennine Mountains 
You have the 12 Caesars. Pre-year one, you're saying these things? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You have the 12, you have the 12 imams of Persia. The yeah. 12, uh, th- those are followers of Ali. The 12 sons of Ishmael, sons of Abram, the 12 knights of the round table, etc. In my opinion, if this is real, I can't even accept that it's real. But if it were, it, it is a system that's based on astrotheological symbolism, right? You have the Moses setting up the 12 stones, which he built a temple near Sinai. Right, those 12 stones at Gilgal, which, you know, it's a stone circle and those 12 stones on Gerizim or Gerizim. I don't know how they pronounce that anymore. It's been a while since I've researched that. But that's the 12 stones on Mount Meru, if you will, the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And then the gods assemble, the gods of the north assemble there. So everything north of the Zodiac you see most of the year round. And so you have like all this stuff. That's a, It's like another rabbit hole, but I think that's where that gravel starts because as an Italian, it's not characteristic to assassinate somebody and then install his heir to the throne. You take out the whole family so nobody from his line or his place can ever lay claim to that crown again or that power. And so to me, that whole situation just doesn't really add up to common sense, but that's me, right? It's just my opinion. Well, I'll take your raise and I'll raise you. I'm all in. And this is a terrible all in to put on the table. I see exactly what you said. And that rabbit hole to me demonstrates how freaking screwed up it is. And I'll use exactly, <laughs> I'll use exactly where I don't even know how to get out from under it because it implies that the reach of some power was so vast that they, they edited everything. And as, as, as Del Mar tries to show, even the marbles are getting censored. They're chiseling marble to censor it, but. Here's the problem. Yeah, I'll, I'll use Greek myth because it's an easy way for people to think about it. You named all the twelves. We can go back to each one of those, show that they're doing the solar year and the way we currently count. But here's the rub. We know for a fact, and I don't think it's deniable that there were 10 months at some point in Rome and the names of the months still prove it, right? September is the seventh, sept. It's not nine. December. I object, I object real quick. All right. So we know with with that, we know they're at least 10 months because that calendar, I, I didn't want to go into it last time we talked about that because it's kind of a rabbit hole, but like you look at the first couple months of that calendar of Romulus, they're named after mythological archetypes, right? You have Mars, the Lord, great, you know, Martius, you have Maya, right? Son of uh, Buddha, I'm sorry, the mother of Buddha, the mother of um, Bacchus, the same as Mira, the mother of Adonis, same as Mary, mother of Jesus. But then all of a sudden at the fifth month, you have Quintilis. And then sixth month, you have Sextilis. And those are on their own. And then you have Yungo, whatever, Junius or whatever, which is based on joining of the year at the solstice. Yungo, that's just, it's just a symbolic term, but it's not really mythological related. Then you have that fifth and sixth month that are like stick out like sore thumbs. And then at the seventh month through the 10th month, that's when they combined that second part of the word, which is ber, which is from brit uh, in Hebrew or whatever that old system is, which means covenant. So September is the seventh covenant, uh, October, the eighth covenant, nine, uh, November, the ninth covenant, December, the 10th covenant. Those four months are totally different than the previous two months, which are totally different than the previous months. It looks like that is the gravel. There's something going on there that looks like it's three different cultures or systems in one calendar. 
That's exactly what I'm getting at. So what I think is probably likely is Augustus jacked it all up. And there was, there was people before him who had tried to do similar things. By the time we got anything near the Vatican, sacred Latin college, they were editing, but here's the problem. What, what I think I heard you say was there was at least 10 months. So what you're implying yeah. is maybe there were 12, but those got juggled around. Rubbed or something. I'm just saying. Here, here's the problem though, because we can relate December to Saturnalia, which we can relate to the low point of the sun. Mm-hmm. So we kind of know that that old 10th month, new 12th month is in that time of the year. But let me finish out the thought. So we take something, I mean, we could use, well, maybe that's not old enough. We'll use Hercules, 12 labors of Hercules. There it is again. And there, <laughs> people have written plenty of books to logically show that he starts in the sign of the ram, Aries, and his 12 labors are the stations of the sun, which basically the Reverend Robert Taylor has shown in so many ways with saints, with, with other ways. But here's, here's the problem. <laughs> there, there weren't 12 months in Greece. Probably. Yeah, there were 11 at the time. So who jacked it up? That had to be Rome, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. I, I, well, that's what it looks like. Has and to be. Who, who that, else? Because Libra, Libra, Libra is, you know, it's all part product of the, the Roman. But the thing is, there's also the assumption that Rome is descended from the Greek. And that's where my work is the early process of debunking that. I, I think you're right. And I think the whole reason for help me out. Which one, which myth, God, we've covered so many the Ennead. Is it the Ennead that tries to say Troy falls, but Zeus says, Hey, go to this place and found Rome. You know, God told you. So they're trying to hook their, the Romans are trying to hook their existence to the heroic time of the Greeks. It's all propaganda. I think they're the same culture. (laughs) I think they're like literally the same. Well, different parts. the Ennead, Ovid, these are all like bootlicker. These are bootlickers, these dudes writing. And I know it sounds abrupt to say, but it's, it's, it's self-serving, these things. Yeah, in those days, those jobs were not done by commoners, right? Like, there's no manuscript that hasn't passed through the hands of the priest. That's right. And I think that's the censors, that's the right? There's even a gig called censor. Yeah. There's even dudes named censor and censorinus. Censorius, you know? <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. The thing is, This is why language is significant, in my opinion, is because it bypasses everything because they never thought people would be literate. So when they were doing this, as long as you know the language, you can at least pick out places of inconsistency. And while I don't know what happened yet with that calendar of Romulus, because I haven't come across anything that like blows it open, there's enough about it just looking at it for me. And when the way the priest class works, they're very particular how they name things. And I don't see why they would start the calendar out naming it after mythology and then finish naming it after numbers. And so that to me is disjointed. Doesn't mean the calendar didn't exist as described. It just means it might have come from different different (laughs) things. I I think Augustus left his thumbprint right on what we call the eighth month. I think the best the best run at this that I've ever heard were powerful men wanted to be gods. And here's, you know, they act like, even if you go, I don't want to mess this up, but I think it's not Socrates. I'm going to say it's um, Aristotle. I hope I got that right. 
who's the teacher of uh, Alexander the Great? That's Aristotle, right? Um, so he tells, I think I'm getting this right. It, one of the two says this. He says, the Greeks have found this great thing in the fifth century. We're free and um, it's never been done before, supposedly. And here's the thing. We're always under pressure from the East, which is true, probably. And eventually we get the story of the 300 that it's so true. Those dudes from the East compounded down the door. Supposedly, these free, these people who have discovered this new form of freedom and high art and beauty fend off you know, miserable odds that they shouldn't have been able to. But what the teacher says is there's always been one difference that can't be ignored. Um, and I'm just quoting a historical claim here. We in the West have figured out freedom and have had the drive for freedom and can comprehend it. But in the East, they've never had any such thing. They only understand dictators, despots, and slavery. And it's an interesting thing to think about because even all the way up into our time, I mean, that's where communism supposedly has its, its big role. We look at what we're told about places like North Korea or China. So if these teachers, in fact, said these things, they weren't wrong. But here's the problem. The claim is, is that the real history went back in the East. You know, we talk about it all the time. You're, you're still reaching for the roots of Sanskrit, right? So we know what's older there. But the claim is, is they knew the cycles. They knew the eclipse cycles. They knew, you know, the Kali Yuga, if you want to put it into that, the really long periods. And supposedly there was a tradition that every 550 some odd years, there would be a new teacher brought to earth, which supposedly is what Delmar says Augustus was reaching for. But unfortunately, he wasn't born at quite the right time. So he jacked it all up. That's the foundation of the claim. Yeah. And for me, I just disagree with that based on the fact that I don't think Augustus is real. What I'm seeing is the church of uh, the church has its takeover. The therapeuti from Egypt, all that stuff has its takeover around that, which the Greeks clearly, are clearly, a part of. Clearly. But but tell me why he why don't you why do you think what has led you to say he doesn't exist? Because that's an awful lot of censorship in Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> the astrotheological encodes that I've described, when the, once I start seeing like the pattern of astrotheology making up a person's story, I now have to decide, okay, his history is obviously astrotheology. Now, what do we have artifacts or writings by him left behind? And that would be my marker. And with, with Julius Caesar, there's at least like writings of, that are basically uh, attributed to him, at least, of his accounts going to like and his and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah so and it just it just seems more and what i'm about to read you i've got it you know i couldn't do this without uh quoting reverend taylor at least once in this episode yeah, come but on i, I mean that, I had, but, but, but I, before you read that i will offer you this i often wondered if taylor lost his faith during all no, this we've had this I don't discussion think so. you don't think I don't so, think so. I think he just was kicking ass and, you know, he, 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 the fire you see in that guy is the fire from a man who has been wrongly imprisoned for blasphemy More when he once. was literally just, yeah, when he was literally just trying to help humanity break free of this dark ages. And kicking, a kicking against, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, masonry and the church, which had gone yeah. so far. But let, let me let me offer, well, go ahead, read what you're going to read. Well, so I was just going to say, because we still see this epicenter of Rome even during Italy's 2000 year decline and the system we're bound to today is, you know, all the legal stuff you've done, it's ecclesiastical in nature. 
and those trusts and all that stuff that took over America and put us into that, you know, legal fiction slavery. It's based on canon laws, canon law trust, and it's out of Rome. And what I want to address. Hold on. Hold on. So first of all, very quickly, we got to wrap. I I haven't been paying attention. Jason's been hitting me with the time. We're over. (laughs) So just lay down on the table. Yeah. Lay down on the table very quickly what we're going to pick up on an hour or two. Quickly. We're going to pick up with what has been lied about with Rome, and then we're going to continue to go into Great Britain. Okay. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you about Augustus, which is a good thing. And I'm actually glad that you don't accept it because this is important that we come from two angles very speedily, tell people where they can find you and your work. And I'm assuming you'll be there to put it in the top comment when this goes live. Go ahead. Sure. If you want to just find everything from my playlists, the podcasts that I've done that aren't behind paywalls, updates, all that stuff, I have like a link to like my sub stack. It's at beacons, B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash great tide, G-R-E-A-T. E-I-D-E. The book that we're covering today is called The Holy Sailors. It just came out this past month. And you can find me at YouTube at Dylan Sicoccio or at Spirit World. And yeah, everything will be at Beacons. All right. There it is. I've got to wrap up quickly. Dylan sent me a copy of his book. It's in my list. Unfortunately, I got a book on the entire work of Socrates, which is like 1500 pages. Uh, Too many books, too little time. But that brings hour one of episode 468 to a close. Uh, the first hour is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. Also, members get free access on the website to the two-hour film, Shoot the Moon, covering all my telescope work, which will resume this spring, but on the sun this time. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And I hope to see you for hour two. It's going to be a good one, particularly opening up uh, with the Reverend Robert Taylor as the foundation. We're both going to stand on. There it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing.